Good morning, everybody. Welcome to Lighthouse Bible Church this morning. Let us begin, as we normally do, by entering into prayer together. Heavenly Father, we just thank you once again this morning for Jesus Christ, our Lord. We thank you for who he is. We thank you for your grace and mercy in sending him to earth for us. And we thank you for your plan of having him die for our sins and for you to raise him from the dead on the third day. We pray also this morning, Father, for the church around the world. We pray for the persecuted church in Muslim and communist countries in particular. We also pray this morning, Father, that the Holy Spirit would guide and direct our time together this morning with the preaching of the word, with the fellowshipping with one another. And we pray finally, Father, that you would look after us during the week and that you would give us awareness of the opportunities we have to love one another and to witness to the unbeliever. We ask all of this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, by the power of the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. Please stand and join us for song service. Good morning again, everybody. A couple of announcements, actually, for before we get started today. This month, we are featuring Mission Aviation Fellowship as our missionary organization that we support. Their mission is to share the love of Jesus Christ through aviation and technology, remember, so that isolated people around the world may be physically and spiritually transformed. They use planes, of course, to do it. That's how they get to remote areas. They support indigenous churches on the ground in those places, local evangelists. They also provide access to needed medical care, disaster relief, and also they make opportunities They make community development projects possible in some of the most remote places on the earth. And this morning, I'd just like to let you know a little bit about one of the families that works for Mission Aviation Fellowship. This is Stephen and Ruth Hale and their children. They are, he is a pilot and mechanic. They serve the Democratic Republic of the Congo. And uh, we just pray for God's patience and wisdom and safety and health and endurance for that Hale family. Again, it's Mission Aviation Fellowship, www.maf.org. Now, some schedule information, summer break. This is going to be Monday, August 4th through Sunday, August 11th. Again, Monday, August 4th through Sunday, August 11th. Although I see this morning that a lot of people have already taken their summer break. But in any event, this is the churches um, from August 4th through August 11th. That means that we're going to have no Bible study that Thursday, August 8th, and no service Sunday, August 11th. So that's the schedule looking forward. After service today, we are going to have a brief outreach uh, meeting. We're going to do some practice this morning on uh, material that's in this particular gospel tract. And so we won't be that long, but we invite everybody to join us to get some practice that we all need. And I want to mention something, too. I know a lot of you remember Destiny, who we supported as a missionary in Egypt for a year. Well, she and her husband are putting together a, a tour of Israel. It's going to be next March, um, the 8th to the 18th. And so I'll give you more information next week. But I wanted you to be aware of that opportunity for those of you that would like to visit Israel. And uh, I will say that Harrison, her husband in particular, is uh, a great, great knowledgeable person about uh, Israel because of the time he spent there and the work that he's done. He's an archaeologist. So um, it should be a great, great trip. Again, I'll tell you more information about it, but it's March 8th to the 18th, 2020, next, uh, next spring. All righty. We have, we have Bibles in the back. If anybody needs one, you can just raise your hand and we'll get one to you. 
All right, with, with that, let's begin the message this morning. Of course, we're in the letter of 1 Corinthians, and we're in chapter 7. And the, letter, the, t- the title this morning is Now Concerning Virgins. Now Concerning Virgins. You know, we put these titles on the sign up in the back. We figured this one would draw a lot of people, but it's the wrong time of year. Now Concerning Virgins. Let's read the passage together. 1 Corinthians 7, starting in verse 25. 1 Corinthians 7 starting in verse 25. That's where we'll begin this morning. Now concerning virgins, I have no command of the Lord, but I give an opinion as one who by the mercy of God is trustworthy. I think that this is good in view of the present distress, that it is good for a man to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be released. Are you released from a wife? Do not seek a wife. But if you marry, you have not sinned. If a virgin marries, she has not sinned yet. Such will have trouble in this life, and I am trying to spare you. But this I say, brethren, the time has been shortened, so that from now on those who have wives should be as though they had none, and those who weep as though they did not weep, and those who rejoice as though they did not rejoice, and those who buy as though they did not possess, And those who use the world as though they did not make full use of it. For the form of this world is passing away. But I want you to be free from concern. One who is unmarried is concerned about the things of the Lord. How he may please the Lord. But one who is married is concerned about the things of the world. How he may please his wife. And his interests are divided. The woman who is unmarried and the virgin is concerned about the things of the Lord that she may be holy, set apart, both in body and spirit. But one who is married is concerned about the things of the world, how she may please her husband. This I say for your own benefit, not to put a restraint upon you, but to promote what's appropriate and to secure undistracted devotion to the Lord. But if any man thinks that he is acting unbecomingly toward his virgin daughter, if she is past her youth, and if it must be so, let him do what he wishes. He does not sin. Let her marry. But he who stands firm in his heart, being under no constraint, but has authority over his own will, and has decided this in his own heart to keep his own virgin daughter, he will do well. So then both he who gives his own virgin daughter in marriage does well, and he who does not give her in marriage will do better. A wife is bound as long as her husband lives. But if her husband is dead, she is free to be married to whom she wishes. Only in the Lord. But in my opinion, she's happier if she remains as she is. And I think that I also have the Spirit of God. This paragraph again begins with the phrase, now concerning virgins. Recall that when Paul writes, now concerning, he's moving on to another question or statement that the Corinthians included in the letter they sent to Paul. We saw that at the beginning of the chapter where the first topic was celibacy. Now, let's go back and just briefly, briefly review what we've seen about the first part of this chapter. Remember that Paul sent the message that, yes, celibacy is to be preferred, but only for those who are so gifted. That'll be a minority of the people, because marriage is also a noble calling. That was what he, that's, that's one of the principles he gave us. The second one, remember, was each man ought to remain in the condition in which he was called. So if you are called while single, remain single. 
if you were called while circumcised, remain circumcised, and so forth. So these are the principles that he's given so far in this chapter. And remember, he was dealing with factions, parties in the church. In chapter 7, we realize that one of those parties was the celibacy crowd. They held that those who were celibate were morally superior and more spiritual than those who weren't. They were telling the married people, the engaged people, and the virgins that they needed to be celibate in order to please God. And this was heresy, and Paul had to deal with it. But he had to deal with it without going too far the other way. Because the fact is, for practical reasons, celibacy was better for those who had that gift. Okay, that's where we've been. And it's important to review that because Paul is going to need to address this subject one more time. Actually, two more times. See, he's already addressed it for the married people and the unmarried and the widows. We'll see more about that today as well. But there was one other group that needed instruction, and that was the virgins. Now, here the virgins mean young ladies of marriageable age. He has to instruct them as well. And you can imagine that they're in a different situation. I remember when I was in another church, and there was an awful lot of excitement about the rapture. Now, you know, for us who have lived a while and have gone through some things and we get a little older and we've got a lot of problems, man, the rapture is like, great, let's have it come on. But you know what? We had these young people, and they kind of saw it a little differently. You know, they wanted to live a little more of their life first. They wanted to get married and experience that. So the young virgins are in a different situation, and Paul realizes he hasn't really addressed that in its own merits. And so that's what he's doing here. He realizes that he needs to address them in a different way. Because, you see, you can be sure that the celibacy party, they were hounding them not to get married. You can imagine. They would tell them it would be sinful. They would make them unsuitable for God to use. As a matter of fact, they would become morally and spiritually unclean. You can imagine the celibacy crowd pumping these people with this kind of information, these virgins. But you know what's interesting, too? At that time, it would not have been effective at all to go directly at the young lady because it wasn't her decision to make. Rather, they would need to challenge the men in her life, any would-be husband and especially her father or guardian. And that's what's going on. We'll see that. Now, I want to tell you that in this part of Scripture, there are a couple of debates, you know, that theologians love to debate. People that uh, exegete the Greek, they always love to have debates. So I'm going to tell you something. I'm not going to engage, no pun intended, in that with you. I'd rather teach you the important principles of the passage. All right, let's get started. 1 Corinthians 7.25. Now concerning virgins, I have no command of the Lord, but I give an opinion as one who by the mercy of God is trustworthy. Now right off the bat, I want you to notice something. Paul goes out of his way. He didn't need to do this. But he goes out of his way to emphasize that what he is about to give them is not a command of the Lord. That's important. Because earlier on, remember when he talked about separating, he said this is from the Lord. And he was pointing back to what the Lord had taught during his public ministry. Remember we Mark, Mark chapter 12, I think. Anyway, it doesn't matter. It's in the notes. But... Uh, dealt with that, that Jesus talked about the fact that if, you, if, you, if a man divorces a woman and marries another, that's adultery. Okay, so Paul has gone out of his way now, though, to emphasize that what I'm going to say next is not a command of the Lord. By the way, he said something similar. If you could briefly go back to verse 12. He said something similar there. 
1 Corinthians 7, 12. Now here, he is giving instructions to believers who were married to unbelievers. This was also something that the Lord hadn't dealt with directly in his teaching. Notice what Paul writes there, 1 Corinthians 7, 12. But to the rest, I say, not the Lord. He always goes out of his way to make this point. When it's not something that comes from the Lord, he wants to make sure they understand that. Not that it's, that's, it's not any different in terms of being scripture in the word of God, but it is different. We'll see this in, the, in who Paul is, is uh, what he's doing, what his function is in this when he says that. But to the rest, I say, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife and so forth. Okay, back to verse 25. But here, in verse 25, Paul even goes further. Not only does he say, this isn't a command of the Lord, but he says he is giving an opinion. An opinion. That's very different, don't you think? If I say, you know, thou shalt, according to the word of God, that's one thing. But if I, if I come up here and say, this isn't from the Lord, this is my opinion. That's different. And we have to say, why is that? What, what, what about what Paul is going to do next is that he characterizes as an opinion. Of course, he goes on and he says, but this is an opinion from one who by the mercy of God is trustworthy. In other words, it's an opinion worth taking to heart. You see, for those people at that time, this was the best possible advice they could get about the subject at hand, which is whether or not virgins should marry. And in his opinion on the matter, he, had a, he took account of their circumstances. You see, that's something that doesn't always happen. In other words, when, when the Lord's told the Pharisees that if you divorce your wife and marry another, you've committed adultery, he wasn't just considering the particular circumstances of those men. He was giving a general principle. But here we're going to see that Paul's opinion on the matter also, in addition to general principles, takes account of their particular circumstances. That's why it was an opinion. You see, because he cared for them, and in his mercy, he wanted to spare them from additional suffering in light of what they were already facing, he gives an opinion. In other words, in this section, he's being a pastor. He's being a pastor. Now, pastors don't write scripture. Well, some of them do, but it's not really scripture when they do it. You see, we don't write scripture. Well, what do we do? We learn it and teach it. And then hopefully we apply it to the lives of the congregation. We take into account what's going on in your lives, the times in which we live. And that's what we have here. You see, Paul provides an opinion because it's tailored to the circumstances that the Corinthian church faced. This is really important to understand. We'll see two Three things he says that, that makes him clear that that's what's going on. He's, he's giving an opinion. He understands general principles, but then he's looking at the situation going on in Corinth at that time, and he tailors what he's going to teach now concerning virgins to the situation, the circumstances that the Corinthian church faced. And that's why he calls it an opinion. But at the same time, he also gives the general spiritual principles upon which his opinion is based. So we get both. We see how he tailors the message to the circumstances of a church. By the way, that's important to see. That's important, by the way, particularly for pastors to see how Paul handled that. But at the same time, he also shows, well, this is where my opinion, this is the solid rock on which my opinion for you at this time is based, you see. And that's what we need to pay special attention to now, today, because our circumstances may be different, may not be, may be different from what the Corinthians were facing at that time. 
So really, we focus on the spiritual principles here that apply to all Christians, regardless of the circumstances they find themselves in. All right, let's go, to, let's go back to the passage, 1 Corinthians 7, 25 to 28. Now concerning virgins, I have no command of the Lord, but a given opinion as one who by the mercy of the Lord is trustworthy. I think that this is good in view of the present distress. Notice that. He is now saying there's some present distress and there's something that was going on in the first century in Corinth. And it's in view of that that he's going to teach what he's going to teach. Notice that. I think that this is good in view of the present distress. That it is good for a man to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife in the midst of this current distress? Do not seek to be released. Are you released from a wife in view of this present distress? Do not seek a wife. But if you marry, you have not sinned, you see. It's not a sin to get married. It's just under the present circumstances. It's not advisable. And if a virgin marries, she has not sinned. Yet such will have trouble in this life, and I am trying to spare you. He advises the men to remain as they are, and he thinks this is good advice in view of what? The present distress. We don't know the details of this distress. It could have, in fact, it probably was external forces, persecution. Uh, maybe it was from the Judaizers. Maybe it was from the, from the government. Maybe it was from the Gentile pagan people that weren't the Christians and they were putting down and, and persecuting the church. It could have been that. Of course, it also could have been something going on inside the church. We've already seen that there's plenty of chaos and situations that are, that are in the church itself that were very distressing. So it could be one or both of those things. Well, all we know is that the distress was severe. It was severe. It was something that really impacted these people in a major way. It was pressing in on their lives. It was constraining them by what they could and could not do. And and by the way, that's why I see it more as something from the outside. But again, we don't really know. But it was something that was pressing in, constraining them. They weren't living a normal life. There was something that was very, very distressing in their life. And under those circumstances, and by the way, we may or may not have those today, I'll grant you, I'll tell you this though, there are places on this planet where the church is under the same kind of situation. Present distress. He's saying under those circumstances it's good for a man to remain as he was. Let me just illustrate. Let's just say again, it's it's church persecution by the government or the people. And because of that, Christian men are finding it impossible to find a job. Christian men knew that they could be put in prison anytime. Well, let me say, if you've lost your job, men, and you're going to could be put in prison any day, that is not an ideal time to get married, to say the least. Present distress. In other words, so under these circumstances, hey, if you're already married or engaged, stay that way. You don't want to create more turmoil. Turmoil. However, if you don't have any ties to a woman, you're not engaged, you're not married, Paul's advice under the circumstances is not to seek a wife. Now, of course, this isn't, this is, look, this is why it can't be the general principle. And the reason is, is that there are many other places in the New Testament epistles where he celebrates marriage, where he talks about the husband loving the wife sacrificially, the wife respecting her husband, and so forth. 
So it's not a general principle that no man should seek a wife. It was just under these circumstances, the distress that they were in, that was his advice. But he says to them, hey, look, if, if despite my advice to the contrary, you decide to go ahead and get married anyway, that is not a sin. It's important to add that. That's why it's his opinion. You see, if it was God's command for the men not to be married and they got married, that would be sinful, wouldn't it? It is. But if it's Paul's opinion, his pastoral heart under certain circumstances, well, then it's not sinful if you don't. It's probably just not sensible if you don't. And if a virgin gets married under these conditions, she's not sinning either. Again, just not sensible, perhaps. You know how it is. You know, if you go to somebody who's mature in the word of God and you ask them what their viewpoint is on a certain subject that's important to you, and then you listen to it and you know that they're mature and they only have your best interest at heart and they know what they're talking about, and yet you don't, you don't listen to them anyway, you don't put into practice the advice they've given you, that's probably not sensible. But it's not sinful. And then Paul makes that point. And he says, listen, um, under these circumstances, with all of this pressure and all of this constraint in your life, the fact is that if you get married, you've just brought on a host of new problems that you really don't need right now. Problems like this. Where will you live? They're not selling you any property right now. How are you going to support you and your wife? You can't get a job. I feel like I'm talking to my son right now. What if she gets pregnant? You know, these are all practical issues. It's not, look, if, if you can't find a home for your wife, right, through no fault of your own, that's not a sin. But it wouldn't be advisable if you can help it to put yourself in that situation. That's what, that is what he is talking about. That's why he calls it an opinion and not, you know, the, the command directly from the Lord. What he's saying is, is that you're already under anxiety and pressure because of the current distress. If, if you put on additional responsibilities and anxiety, well, that's just going to multiply your problems. The last thing you need right now is to heap a whole new set of difficulties on top of the ones you already have. And there are, believe me, there are a lot of situations, men and women, where these are, this is the fact. This is what we're facing. It could be personal. It could be the congregation. It could be more widespread, but there's some present distress, some pressure, some constraints that make it inadvisable at that time to get married. Okay. And again, by the way, this is true of anybody. See, there's a general principle here behind the opinion for the times. And again, that's what we're going to focus on. We're going to see that's because that's what Paul focuses on. But make no mistake, his advice to him was fatherly. It was given out of mercy. He cared. He loved these people. He wanted to give them the best possible advice, the best guidance about what they should and shouldn't do. And he wanted to spare them trouble. That was his motivation. Notice it wasn't to spare them. He didn't say, I'm going to spare you going to the lake of fire. He didn't say, if you don't listen to this, you're not saved. If you don't listen to this, then you're going to lose the race and not have any rewards. There's none of that. He says, look, I'm trying to spare you trouble. That's why he gives the opinion that he does. And, you know, while the trouble was certainly amplified in the distressing circumstances that they faced, here's a fact that's a general principle. Marriage does bring on additional worries. It brings on additional concerns. It brings on additional problems. Those of us who are married today, think back to a time when all you had to worry about was yourself. 
Maybe you had an apartment and a job and lots of free time and time for your friends. And there really wasn't too much pressing in on you. You, didn't, you may have had some worries. You know, we always do, whether they're real or imagined. But, but it wasn't the same, right? After you got married, it was different. Now you had to be in a relationship day in and day out. We always, you know, if you're living it the way you're supposed to, thinking about the other person, right? Remember, that's a Christian heart in any relationship, right? But her needs before yours. Love her sacrificially. The woman says, I'm going to put my husband's needs. I understand that what he needs from me is respect and for me to go along with the program that he's set for the family. So that's additional concerns. That's additional problems at times too, because a lot of times our, what we want doesn't line up with what the other person wants. That's, of course, that's endemic to any relationship, but marriage is the closest one. So marriage, now that's just for getting married. Then let's put children in the mix. Now you've got a whole new set of problems. Now you've got a situation where for the first few months of this little critter's life, you can't sleep for goodness sake. Now that's a concern. That's a worry. And that's the thing about, you know, I think about the fact that it was a burden to me, a wonderful burden. Please don't misunderstand. There's a whole other side here. But practically speaking, you know, the kid gets sick, the whole house is out of order. You know, what are we going to do? We take him to the emergency room. Can we wait till the morning and the pediatrician and all that stuff? I didn't have to worry about that stuff when I was single. In fact, I'm not even sure I knew what a pediatrician was. But it comes on with these new responsibilities that, have, that come. They just come automatically by having a child. Oh, and by the way, they never stop. <laughs> they don't. You're going to be a parent, whether you like it or not, in your heart, if not physically in their home, for the rest of your life if you have a kid. And thank God for that. You know, that's what we all need, don't we? Somebody who's in it for the long haul, a parent you can turn to no matter what. But on the parent side, it is something that's additional that you have to always deal with, regardless of circumstances. So now it's gone from diapers to basic training, in the case of my son. But still, you know, I'm still waiting for the phone call and all of that. So it never, never really changes, I don't believe. But I want to emphasize that this is a practical concern. It's not an ethical concern. Okay? You're not more spiritual if you don't marry. You're not less spiritual if you do marry. Or flip that around. You know, it's interesting because in the Catholic Church, if you, you know, the priests have to be celibate. They have to be. Okay? And the, the nuns do too. So they don't have any choice in the matter. Okay? But they actually think that it's more spiritual not to get married. But let's not get too, too comfortable because you want to know something else? In a lot of Protestant and Christian non-denominational churches, the other way around. They, they think that if you're not married, there's something wrong. So neither is true. You're not more spiritual if you don't marry or if you do marry. And you're not less spiritual either. So that's important. That's the fact that this is a practical concern. He's looking at our day in and day out life. And in certain situations, he wants to spare us from problems that are, we can't really deal with because of what's already going on. All right, let's continue. Verse 29. But this I say, brethren, the time has been shortened. That is a second indicator of how this opinion of Paul's is being formed. Okay? He says, look, there's a present distress and the time has been shortened. So that from now on, those who have wives should be as though they had none. Because I'm hearing some men say, hallelujah. That's not what you may think is not what he's talking about here. Okay? So that those who have wives should be as though they had none. Those who weep as though they did not weep. Those who rejoice as though they did not rejoice. Those who buy 
as though they did not possess. And those who use the world as though they did not make full use of it. For the form of this world is passing away. So Paul brings up a second consideration. The time has been shortened. By the way, this one applies entirely to all Christians in all situations. So this one does apply to us. Because the fact of the matter is that the time has been shortened for us as well. For every Christian. What do I mean by that? Very simply. Christ could come back tonight. Right? You could. So that if that happens, boy, the time is short. You know? I got one day to figure out, you know, what am I going to do? We never actually know when he's coming back. But we have to take account of the fact that he could come back. So the time has been shortened for us as well. In terms of the, you know, in terms of the practical side of life. You know what? He really could come back tonight. And therefore, my priorities will be different. You know, I may be married, but if he comes back, that won't be an issue anymore. You know, the angels in heaven don't marry. Once, once the rapture happens, then I, the marriage, the marriages for earth, on earth, men and women, and so forth. But when we're raptured, that's, we're not going to be married anymore. Okay, that's why I know the romantics among us are getting, oh, come on, you can't say that. Because, you know, all the cards say, I will love you forever. And this, you know, but, but the fact is, is that the marriage is for this earthly life. It doesn't go on forever and ever and so forth. So for us who understand that Christ could come back at any time, the time has been shortened. We may be sad, we may be, we may be um, upset about something, but we understand it's temporary because the time has been shortened. We understand that we can be happy about something, but we shouldn't feel like this is the be-all and end-all. You know how it is. Something good happens to you, and you're on top of the world, and you think it'll always be that way, and so forth. Well, it, you know, it's fine, but you shouldn't take it too far, Okay. It doesn't mean that you can never buy anything, women. No. It doesn't mean that at all. Right? He just says as if you possess it. In other words, don't buy it and then think, oh man, I've got this and nothing, nobody's going to take it from me and so forth. Well, guess what? If you die, it's not going to be in your arms anymore. If, you, if we're raptured tomorrow, you can't bring it with you. You know, I'm, I, when the rapture isn't like taking a flight. You know, you can take one carry-on and one bag that you check. That's not, that's not what's going to happen at the rapture. All those possessions are going to be gone. In other words, in view of our destiny, what is that? That we know the Lord's going to come back for us. We know that one day we'll be face to face with Him. We know one day we'll have a resurrection body just like His. And by the way, all of that could happen in a day. In view of that, in view of the rapture, in view of the eternal things, that we'll be with Christ forever. In view of that, We shouldn't get too focused on the temporary things of this world. You see, that's a general principle that applies to everybody. Now, it may also be in the time of the Corinthians in the first century that literally time has been shortened. I mean, it certainly was, for example, for the Jewish people at that time. You know, in fact, maybe they didn't know it, but they only had 15 years before Jerusalem would be destroyed in 70 AD. So clearly for them, the time literally was shortened. But for all of us, the time has been shortened because of the imminency of the rapture. That it could happen at any time. Okay. So we shouldn't, given that, once we're oriented to those truths, once we also, by the way, understand that our life is in heaven, we've died and our life is hidden with Christ, that's a scripture, right? 
Set your mind on the things above, not on the things of earth. You see, these are general principles for all Christians at all times. And given that, you shouldn't hold too tightly to that which has made you sad. You shouldn't hold too tightly to that which has made you rejoice. You shouldn't hold too tightly to anything that you've purchased, to what you're you're doing in the world right now. Don't hold on to it too tightly, because it could all be done in a day. In view of our destiny, we ought not get so focused on the temporary things of this world that we lose sight of the eternal things in heaven. After all, Paul would say, momentary light affliction. Any of those things that are bringing you down, that are constraints, that are distressing, that are causing you tears, he says, listen, that's a momentary light affliction. You see, for those who don't see life in view of eternity, it's anything but that to them. You know, this is why we have such a problem with many people when it comes to using drugs and alcohol, when it even comes to suicide, because they think that whatever's going on, it's always going to be like that. There's nothing any different. And it's not momentary in light. It's never going to end in their mind. And if that's the way you are, that's a really depressing place to be. But if you understand that no matter what you're going through, it's momentary in light in comparison with the eternal way to glory. You see, knowing this changes how you see that. And Paul says that's true. Even though the particular circumstances that we're in will change, our situation is not the same as the Corinthians, but the principle is, Don't get so focused on the things of this world, the temporary things, that we lose sight of the eternal things in heaven. But I hasten to add one other thing. This does not mean that you should neglect the earthly things. That's what I said what I did about the men, right? Those who have wives should act as though, should be as though they had none, you know? If you're not careful as a pastor, the guys are going to run out and cheat on their wives and, you know, all of that. Don't support them and so forth. That is not at all what Paul is saying here. He's not saying you should neglect these earthly things. It does not mean that you should abandon your wife and kids. See, this is what the celibacy crowd was saying. Abandon your wife and just be celibate. Be more spiritual now. No, you can't neglect these earthly things. It doesn't mean that you can't cry or be sad. You just can't put too much emphasis on it. It doesn't mean that you can never be happy or joyful. It doesn't mean that you can't purchase anything. By the way, that would be unbiblical, not to mention impossible. Think about it. Come on. How long would you live if you couldn't buy anything? That's an interesting question, isn't it? How long could you live if you didn't buy anything? Well, of course, that includes food. Right? And water and a place to live and clothes, right? We need that to live. It's impossible not to do that. He's not saying not to purchase things. And husbands are not supposed to abandon their wives and children. They're supposed to love their wives sacrificially and bring up their children in the Lord. And we're supposed to weep with those who weep. This is scripture. And rejoice with those who rejoice. As a matter of fact, the fruit of the Spirit is joy, as well as love and peace and the rest of it. So if, if joy is sinful and we have to stop it, how can it be that the fruit of the Spirit is joy? You see, what he's saying is that you cannot be, he's not saying you can't be happy and joyful. He's just saying that you shouldn't, that shouldn't be the be all and the end all, all right? Particularly when it's tied to, to earthly things. Because Paul also, he rejoiced all the time. Just read the book of Philippians. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. You see, the problem isn't with rejoicing or being sad. The problem is with it being 
the, everything to you and not considering the eternal things. And again, this doesn't mean you can't buy anything. It does mean you shouldn't live for your possessions. We make use of the world. We have to. We have to eat. We have to work. We should be witnessing to unbelievers, but we shouldn't make full use of it. We shouldn't be totally wedded to the world. We shouldn't. We shouldn't take all of our emphasis and identity and, and enjoyment from the world, you see. That's what Demas did. Paul had to say, right, Demas, having loved this present world. See, that's what we cannot do. We'll make use of it, but not full use of it. In other words, this is all about our mental attitude. Our mental attitude. What's your attitude towards difficulty and tragedy? What's your attitude toward the possessions that God has blessed you with? Do you hoard them? Like the man who had his barns full, but his life was required of him that very night? Or are you generous with them? Realizing where they come from. And realizing that your father is going to take care of you while you're on earth. And that there's treasures in heaven that are more important than the treasures on earth. You see, that's what he's talking about. Mental attitude. And in view of the rapture of Jesus Christ, we are to keep our loins girded, as it were. The Bible talks about that. Just meant, for example, when the, when the Jews were waiting to be delivered out of Egypt, they were ready. The Lord said, I'm going to come for you. And they were ready. Imagine if they said, listen, Lord, we'd love to come to you the promised land. But you know what? I married a wife. I cannot come. I have a yoke of oxen. I just consider me excused from the, from the exodus. No, you, you know, that wouldn't make any sense. Well, we're the same thing. We should always be anticipating the Lord could come back tonight. So again, all these things realize that while they're good in their own right, there's nothing wrong with possessions. There's nothing wrong with being married. We've seen that several times. There's nothing wrong. In fact, everything right with weeping in certain situations and being rejoiceful in others. There's nothing wrong with that. But just realize this is the mental attitude. All of that passes away when we die or at the rapture. And that ought to be our mental attitude. As John says, I'll put the scripture up, 1 John 2, 17. The world is passing away. You see, can you see how different that is from the earthly, natural man? Right? Although these days, people will be like, yeah, global warming, right? You know, no, God's plan, God's plan. You know, Peter said that there are going to be those who will be saying, you know, "Ah, I'm scoffing at the idea of Christ coming back. Things are as they've always been. But Jesus would say, yeah, you know what? That was that was how they were thinking in Noah's time, not knowing that the flood was coming. You see, that's our attitude. These things are not forever. The world is passing away and also its lusts. But. Here's the right attitude. The one who does the will of God lives forever. You see, never get so wrapped up in your career or your family or your possessions and so forth that you don't do the will of God. Because that's infinitely more important. And Paul understood that. Please turn to Romans chapter 8, verse 23 to see this from another angle. Romans 8, 23. I don't know about you, but any time I get to go to Romans 8, I'm rejoicing. I, love, I mean, that's, it really is. That's the, that is the pinnacle. That is the mountaintop, Romans 8, of being a Christian. Okay? Anytime you're feeling low, just go to Romans 8, spend some time in it. You'll be okay. Romans 8, 23. 
He's talking in context about the fact that the whole creation groans waiting for the appearance of the sons of God. That's creation. That's nature. And then he turns to us and he says what? Not only that, but we ourselves, the Christians, having the first fruits of the Spirit. You see, we've been given the Spirit. He's the down payment, the earnest on what was come. Once we have that, we're longing in our hearts in our new man, for the things that are permanent, that are eternal. He says, listen, we also ourselves, having the first fruits of the Spirit, we have a taste of eternity because the Spirit dwells in us. Even we ourselves groan within ourselves. Why? Because we're here on earth and we're longing to be with Christ. We're groaning in ourselves. Notice this though. Here's the attitude. Waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. The redemption. When is the redemption of our body going to occur? At the rapture of Jesus Christ. What are we doing? We're waiting eagerly for that. You know, uh, you may wake up in the morning, especially if you've lived on this planet for a few decades, and have some aches and pains. You know, and if you're not careful, that's going to be the be-all and end-all. Oh, you know, I've had some experience of that lately. Oh, how am I ever going to not have this anymore, you know? Well, here, here, the answer to that is when you get a resurrection body. You won't have that anymore. And so that, that should be our perspective. Now, that's not easy. I understand physical pain is a tough thing to deal with. But especially there, it gives us hope and joy to understand that this is not permanent. This is something that will pass away. There will be a time when our body will be fully redeemed. Resurrection body. And so therefore, having the down payment of the Spirit... We're groaning now because we really want that to happen at any time. That's our mental attitude, in other words. Our mental attitude is not to be stuck in our circumstances right now, but to realize and wait eagerly for the Lord to return, and then we'll have our new resurrection bodies. Okay, back to 1 Corinthians 7, and we'll be in verse 32. 1 Corinthians seven thirty-two. Paul continues. He's talked about the fact that we should not make full use of the world because the form of this world is passing away. Then he goes back to the subject. Verse 32 of chapter 7. But I want you to be free from concern. See, that's his pastor's heart again. He's telling you where he's coming from with all of this. He's saying, I have a desire for you to be free from concern. As a matter of fact, later on, he'll talk about a desire for some people to be happy. Free from concern. He says, listen, one who is unmarried is concerned with the things of the Lord. In other words, it's much more straightforward to keep your eyes on the things above when you're single because you don't have all these things impinging on you, reminding you of the fact that you're not there yet. One who is unmarried is concerned about the things of the Lord, how he may please the Lord. But one who is married is concerned about the things of the world, how he may please his wife and his interests are divided. Every time I open a newspaper and I see something turning for the worse in our country, you know where my mind goes? It doesn't go to me. It goes to my children and thinking about my grandchildren. You see, I've got concerns that a single person wouldn't have. You see it? He says, says, listen, under the circumstances, I don't want you to be weighed down with too many concerns. I want you to be concerned about the things of the Lord. But one who is married has to be concerned about the things of the world and how he may please his wife and his interests family, the Lord, are divided. That's just the way it is. That's just the way it is. If you're married, your interests are divided. The family and the Lord. The woman who's unmarried and the virgin 
is concerned about the things of the Lord, that she may be holy, set apart, not only in spirit as we all are, but also in body. Her very body allows her to be set apart for the Lord. Remember we saw that married men and women, the body of the woman is the man's and the body of the man is the, is the woman's. So our bodies are not our own. But if you're, if you're single, your body can be dedicated to the Lord full time. To be, be set apart both in body and spirit. But one who is married, the woman now, is also concerned about the things of the world. How she may please her husband. Then he hastens to add that he's not making a moral judgment. He's not saying that those who are single are better in any way from those who are married. He's talking about the circumstances and how they make differences between the two situations. He says, listen, I'm saying this for your own benefit. Not to put a restraint upon you. I'm not saying you can't. I'm saying be ready for the additional challenges you're going to have in your spiritual life and in your practical life when you get married. I'm trying to promote, Paul says, what's appropriate. Some of you should not get married. You you have the gift of celibacy, and for you to get married would be inappropriate. He's saying, I want you to secure undistracted devotion to the Lord. Let me hasten to add, that's not impossible for those who are married. I've seen so many examples of that, especially if, they're, if the husband and the wife are on the same page. You can still figure out a way to have undistracted devotion to the Lord. It's just harder than if you're single. Because those who are married face a lot of temptations that the unmarried do not face. And here's the issue. They have many concerns that if they're not on top of it, could cause them to become unfruitful. Unfruitful. Not losing their salvation, because that's impossible, but unfruitful, which is the issue for us after we're saved. But again, the issue isn't marital status. Not at all. The issue is what? Pleasing the Lord. You can please the Lord as a married person, but there are some challenges associated with it that the single people don't have. Being concerned about the things of the Lord. It's just natural that if you've got that whole to-do list, and you've got kids knocking on your door, and you've got All of that stuff going on. Look, by simple arithmetic, it's harder to be married. What do I mean? Well, there's one person that problems you have to deal with if you're single. If you're married, it starts off with two. And you have the first child, it's three. If you have a second child, it's four. Third child, it's five. Okay? All of that you have to be concerned with. That's more complicated. You have, you, have people, you, have, you have people that are sinners <laughs> in the family. We're all sinners, right? But if you're just dealing with one sinner, that's one thing. If you're dealing with five, that's a little more complicated. If there's a 50% chance that anyone is, is happy in one day, if I'm single, that's, there's a 50% chance that my household is happy. But if you do the math for five people, it's sort of like, like 10%, maybe less, that everybody's happy. It's just more complicated. It's not impossible, though. The issue is not marital status. The issue is being concerned of the things of the Lord and securing undistracted devotion to the Lord. That is what I want you to keep in mind. Am I achieving undistracted devotion to the Lord? Am I able to secure that in my life? That's the question. Because that's where we're all called. Here's the general principle of all times and places as being a Christian. Every one of us is called to have undistracted devotion to the Lord with the emphasis on undistracted. What does that mean? It means if you're single, okay, then you still have to organize your life and do your job and all of that. But you've got some time in addition to that. If you're married, 
it's a lot harder to find the time to have this undistracted devotion to the Lord. See, that's the issue. Still organizing your life, setting your priorities so that this comes first. This comes first. You don't neglect the rest, but this comes first. You see, a married person can do that just like an unmarried person can. It's just got some more challenges. But you know what? There are some single people who have these challenges too. Got a friend in Arizona, Richard Nolan. Okay? He's a paraplegic. It takes him like four hours to get up and dressed and showered in the morning. So he has got the same challenge. And his wife, who helps him all along the way, Kelly, same challenge, maybe more so. Of course, they're married too. I didn't think of that. But, but there are circumstances in people's lives, even if they're single, that could cause this to be a big challenge. So it's not only the married people, but it's something that we all have to take stock of and be honest and realistic about and say, am I able to do that? Before we get married, we should have the mindset, when I get married and I start putting this married life together, I can't lose that. I can't lose that. Undistracted devotion to the Lord. We're all called. Now let me throw this in. If you're not called to the celibate life, you're not, okay? You're not called to the celibate life. You don't have the gift of celibacy. You don't. You have the desires, strong desires, sexual desires, desires to get married. If you don't have the gift of celibacy and yet you try to remain celibate, guess what? You're going to have all kinds of distractions in your life. You're trying to live the celibate life and all you can think of is a man or a woman. You see? And, you don't, and you're working. You know, it's, um, I think it was Casey Stangle that talked about his ball players, And they asked him one time, are you concerned about the guys who are with the women? He says, No. I'm concerned with the guys that are chasing the women. So that takes all the time. So if you're, if you're not gifted with celibacy and you try to remain celibate, you're going to have inner turmoil. You're not going to be free from concern at all. So this is not a hard and fast rule at all. It has to do with how you've been gifted. Yet, Paul is asking us to face facts. Be realistic. Don't have your head in the clouds. Don't think that all of a sudden, because you're married and have two kids, you're going to be given 56 hours a day. You're not. You know, the same 24 as anybody else, and you're going to have to work harder to figure out how to secure undistracted devotion from the Lord. Because Paul wants all of us to be fruitful. And again, married people face a lot of pressures that could cause us to be unfruitful if, if we let them. We don't have to let them. But it requires discipline not to let them. Please turn to Mark chapter 4, verse 18. Mark chapter 4, verse 18, where the Lord deals with the same thing, okay, in a parable. Mark 4.18, this is the same Lord, of course, who talked about men who say, you know, I'm invited to this feast, but I've got to turn down the invitation. Why? Well, you know, I married a wife, and I cannot come. I have six yoke of oxen. My business comes before the Lord, right? And that's the issue. The issue is nothing wrong with having a business. There's everything wrong with making it cause you not to accept the invitations to be fruitful. And that's the, that's the issue here. Look at Mark 4.18. And others are the ones on whom seed was sown among the thorns. These are the ones who have heard the word. But what? The worries of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word and it becomes unfruitful. That's the issue. Will you let 
the worries of the world choke the word of God so that you become unfruitful? Will you let the deceitfulness of riches? Oh man, I got plenty of money. I'm all set, but I got to protect it now. I got to work a long time every day to figure out how to invest the money to get even more. Will you let that enter in and choke the word so that you become unfruitful? Well, you start have all these interests and desires. Maybe some of them are from the family. Maybe they aren't. But are you going to let those things become the center of your life so that you have the word choked and you become unfruitful? That's the issue. Everything that Paul talks about in chapter 7, he points out for our benefit. Our benefit. He's not scolding. He's not like, you know, the, the old spinster who's saying, oh, that's really terrible. You shouldn't have sex, you know. No. He's saying all of this for our benefit. All of us. See, he knows that the, he knows what's really important. After all, I mean, the evidence is all over his letters. He knows what's really important. He knows the priorities that we ought to have. He wants to make sure that if we're going to get married, we go into the marriage with our eyes wide open. About what? The tremendous pull of these concerns that could take us away from the things of the Lord. I'll say it one more time. Married people must make an extra effort to set their mind on the things above in spite of the extra pressure and concerns they face. It's not unique to married people, but all of them will be in this situation. You have to make an extra effort to set your mind on the things above, in spite of the extra pressure and concerns that you're going to face. As a pastor, okay, I, could, I sometimes think about, well, you know what? Why am I concerned about money at times? You know? I mean, I know enough about myself. I remember who I was. I honestly, I could live in a one-bedroom apartment and be okay. Maybe not thrilled, but okay. But because I have a wife and kids, this is not going to work. You see, I got to be concerned about their needs and so forth. So we do. We have extra concerns as married people that we need to face. All right, go back to First Corinthians seven. Going to a couple more things and we'll close. First Corinthians seven thirty-six now. 36. Now we're going to get into virgins directly. It's sort of been part of the discussion, but now he's going to go at it directly. And let's see what he says. 1 Corinthians 7, 36. If any man thinks that he is acting unbecomingly toward his virgin daughter, if she's past her youth, that means she's a marriageable age, okay? And if it must be so, in other words, she doesn't have the gift of celibacy, let him do what he wishes. She, he does not sin, let her marry. But he who stands firm in his heart, he knows that she does, she, she'll be fine if she's not. Being under no constraint. In other words, it's not because the celibacy crowd is putting pressure on him to do it. But as authority over his own will, he's clearly able to make his own decision here. And he's decided in his own heart to keep his own virgin daughter. He will do well. So then he, both he who gives his own virgin daughter in marriage does well. And he who does not give her in marriage will do better. Do better on her behalf because she won't have all of the concerns and things that will distract her if she has the gift of celibacy. Now, anybody this morning have an NIV? It's okay if you're doing this, raise your hand. You don't have to raise your hand either. The reason I say that is because the NIV has a totally different approach to this passage, okay? That's what I meant the controversy is not going to get into, okay? So what I'm going to do is just to say this in a way that, that takes into account a different perspective as well. Now, again, I want to remind everybody that Paul is giving this advice in the first century at a time when fathers or guardians gave their daughters hand in marriage. 
And that was how it worked. As a matter of fact, you can make a pretty good argument that the biblical view of what's a marriage, a lot of people say, what is a Christian marriage? How do I know? Well, in, the, in this time and place, it would have been because your father has, has decided that this is in your best interest and is going to give your hand to the young man. Okay. We don't have that today. But they made the ultimate decision, the father, the guardian, about whom she would marry, or even if she should marry. Yeah, I know, it's very different today, for sure. For sure. We're just, we're just happy if they get married today, right? Amen? They're not living together. They've not had a gender experience or any of that stuff, right? Times have changed. I'm not, of course, because of that, I'm not really sure we're better off. You know, you, you be the judge. So even though the subject is about virgins, he doesn't address the virgins at all. Even though it's about unmarried young ladies of marriageable age, Paul addresses the men in their lives rather than the virgins themselves. That's interesting. But here we go again. The basic message is the same. One more time. Here it is. If the father gives her his... It should be his. If the father gives his daughter's hand in marriage, nobody sinned. He hasn't sinned. His daughter hasn't sinned. The man who marries her hasn't sinned. As a matter of fact, he's done well. Right? If he's, if he's got a good Christian marriage on his hands with his daughter, he's done well. That's a noble calling. But... If the father keeps her as a virgin and no young man marries her, this is better. Boy, is that rub against things. I understand. But practically, just I want to keep emphasizing that. <coughs> By the way, though, Paul brings out this. The man has to check those mental boxes. What do I mean? He has to be sure he's making his decision freely. He's not clouded by somebody's opinion or pressure. Not under compulsion. And he had better be considerate of the interests of the young lady. That's first and foremost. You see, this is a practical thing. It's not a spiritual thing. It's not a moral thing. It's a practical thing. All right, let's go to verses 39 and 40, and we'll totally wrap this up. A wife is bound as long as her husband lives. But if her husband is dead, she's free to be married to whom she wishes. Only in the Lord, another believer. But in my opinion, there he says it again, she's happier. Not more holy, not more spiritual, but what? happier. That's his concern as a pastor. She's happier if she remains as she is, and I think I also have the Spirit of God. Paul ends this chapter with a summing up of what he's been saying all along. You know, he addresses the situation here of a married woman whose husband dies. He's already taught what he repeats here, that a married woman shouldn't leave her husband. He's just restating that. That shouldn't be news. He's already made that point. Now he's dealing with a widow. Should she marry? Should she remain single? And by the way, again, he couches the whole thing by saying, this is my opinion as somebody who has your best interest at heart. And he does say that, you know what? I believe the Holy Spirit agrees with this opinion. What's the opinion? Well, he does not say that she'll be more spiritual, does he? Right? My opinion, she is happier if she remains as she is. And she's more spiritual and more spirit. No. He shall be what? Happier. Okay. That's so important. He doesn't say she'll be more spiritual. He says that she will be happier. That's his heartbeat. Not moralizing. Only because as a pastor, he has her best interests at heart. And what does he want? He wants her to be happy. Happy. All right. Let's close in prayer. 
Father, we thank you this morning for your word that you presented to us here in chapter 7. We hope, Father, that we've grasped the meaning of it, that we are able to make application in our own lives, to not approach this legalistically for ourselves or others, but rather to understand the heartbeat of Paul and the Lord in all of this, that looking out for our benefit, what's practical, what's in our best interest. So in that light, let us consider these and reconsider these principles that are here. And again, at the end of this service this morning, Father, we do want to have an opportunity to thank you for the gospel and its simplicity that Jesus Christ died for our sins, was buried, and was raised from the dead on the third day so that whoever believes, simply believes, in this good news about your Son will never perish but has eternal life. Wow. That's amazing, Father. We thank you that this, that great gift you've given us is by grace through faith. And Father, as we close today, we also would ask the Holy Spirit's guidance and direction on our lives during the week. Maybe it's the area that Paul has presented in chapter 7, but maybe it's something else that you've given us in your word previously or in our own study that we need to take heart and apply. We would ask for the power of the Spirit to do so. It's in the name of Christ we pray, by the power of the Spirit, amen. Next service, Thursday, July 18th, 7 p.m., Bible study. If you have any prayer requests, I want to emphasize this because we pray on Thursdays. You can give them on our website or you can put them in the box in the foyer area. And then finally, just a reminder, we're going to have our outreach session about 10 minutes from now. And uh, again, that won't last real long, but give everybody an opportunity to practice some of the things that you want to be able to say when you have an opportunity to witness to somebody. All right. Father, we thank you for all of this. We ask, Father, for your guidance and direction, particularly in terms of witnessing. And we'd ask that you bless our time together in outreach. We ask this all in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, by the power of the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen.